Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 36, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And here we are into our 36th episode. It's dark outside right now at like 8 o'clock in the evening. Yeah, I've got a cold. It's all uh, getting wintery. <laughs> Everything's pumpkin spiced in the shops all of a sudden. <laughs> now, if you are new to the podcast, first of all, where have you been? We've been doing this since, like, what, January now? Yeah, we've done 36 episodes, come on. But there are a lot of people just getting into the show and it's like, we've got a big back catalogue to check out. Totally. So many amazing guests as well, including the guy that we have on this week. Now, if you are new to the show, the way the show works is Ravi and I talk through the big technology and retro stories of the week, and then the second half of the show is dedicated to a very interesting guest, and this week, it is one for the Amiga heads, isn't it? Dude, you've come up trumps with this. I can't believe it. Ben Vost, Amiga Formats editor. My favourite magazine, man. Now, Ben was involved with Amiga Format in the, the latter years, wasn't he? So he was there from like 96 onwards, which I think, I mean, Amiga Format, I read it from like 91 up until the last issue. And a lot of people, when you tell them Amiga Format went on to like the year 2000, into the 21st century, yeah. people are like, no way, an Amiga magazine still going then. But, you know, this is a guy that really, you know, he held the Amiga community together, really. Amiga Format was at the centre of it all, wasn't it, in those totally. later years? In the UK, it was just... It was the biggest consumer magazine at one point, wasn't yeah. it? Bigger yeah, bigger than like the movie mags and everything. Then Amiga GQ, format. then all these fashion <laughs> mags, Amiga dominated at one point. Yeah, and like, you know, Ben, obviously, he was the editor of Amiga Format, the last one, and the guy that had to close the magazine down as well. Yeah. So, and this is actually the first time that Ben has ever spoken out about the Amiga stuff in what, what's it been now, 16 years? Yeah, So <laughs> over a decade, definitely. It's yeah. insane. And the time is right for him to come and talk about it. And he's yeah. actually keen to get back into the Amiga scene again, he's going to tell us in a bit. So definitely, if you remember Amiga format, if you love the Amiga, hang around. Ben Vost on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. Now, before we get into this week's stories, we've got a couple of massive thank yous we need to do. Yeah, we've got to thank two amazing donators. Now, um, we've got to say a huge thank you, Yosef Vermosi, and also uh, Michael Oglesby. Hopefully we pronounced your names correctly. Uh, but these guys have made... Very, very generous donations to the Retro Hour this week. Um, we did mention we have got a little PayPal donation button, you know. Little, think of it as a little yeah. tip jar, if you just want to say thank you. And you may recognise Joseph as well, because he does his cap replacement service. Yeah, we had so, him on, didn't we, a couple yeah, of months ago. Yeah, he's a man to talk to about replacing your capacitors and getting your Amigas going again. And, and, and Michael's an awesome guy. He tweets us all throughout the week, gives us loads of like input and stuff like that. So, yeah, totally. Uh, really appreciate the donations, guys, and thank you so much for that. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, ever leave a little tip in the tip jar, theretrohour.com, anything you give will, of course, go towards a running of the show now i thought since we've got ben vost on in just a bit it might be quite nice to open with some uh, exciting commodore and amiga news commodore is back what b- before you roll your eyes because i know it's happened a few <laughs> times making commodore 64 and amiga products okay so we all know that the name has been used for <laughs> <laughs> and abused <laughs> used and abused throughout the history of time so what's going on now dan how come they've actually managed to get the official commodore trademark well, this is individual computers. Ah, Jen Schofield and these yeah. guys. So if you're not familiar, I mean, you know, these guys, they make some of the best modern Amiga hardware, stuff like the, the Indivision um, scan doubler. Yeah, yeah, they also do C64 stuff as well. Well, so. Jen's actually made um, a reboot of the Commodore 64, like, you know, an entire new motherboard. And now he's got the original moulds from Commodore for the Commodore 64C cases. So he's making those. He's redoing it. So basically, all this old dying technology, he's creating new versions so they can last forever. Yeah. (laughs) And he's done um, the Amiga 1200 Reloaded that he's going to be doing, like a new version of the Amiga 1200 with that onboard USB and all that it's got as well. So... And what is good about this is individual computers have been doing great Amiga products for years, but he's actually now managed to license the Commodore trademark from the company that hold it. 
This is amazing because I know it was Commodore USA before. Mm-hmm. There was Commodore, blah, blah, MP3 blah. MP3 players yeah. and CD-ROMs and Rebranded game cases, <laughs> everything. So it's good that an actual company that's creating Commodore hardware can have the name. Yeah. I'm glad. And they're Germany as well. They're German-based. It's absolutely massive. And it's, you know, just being able to buy new Amiga and Commodore hardware with the Commodore logo on, it's all official and that. that is... It's all like come full circle, hasn't it, Dan? It's crazy, isn't it? So, I, you know, I, I, I love individual computers products. So I think it couldn't have gone to a more deserving team. So Yeah, I don't know how many of my uh, machines have individual stuff in them, but I've got quite a lot. <laughs> got the Big Ram Plus, the um, the Xsurf Ethernet, the USB, got it all. So, yeah, congrats to Jensen, though. I think, you know, that, that's really cool that they're going to get the official Commodore trademark on their products from now Finally, on. Finally, yeah, we might start seeing, like, Commodore bags and cool <laughs> stuff like we see with Atari. <laughs> and not the ones on eBay that are, you know, not, not quite legit. <laughs> yeah, shady. <laughs> now, you've got some uh, quite interesting GameCube news. Yeah, this is by uh, a contributor, Starquake, who always sends us some good news. And GameCube, we've not talked about the GameCube, really, have we? Cool little console, though. Yeah, I've got, I've got cool two little console, but there's little discs. Was that it? Was Nintendo's first disc-based system, wasn't it? But you know, they couldn't admit defeat and go with yeah. full-size DVDs. It had to be them little things. It's like them CD single style, uh, really small ones. But basically, there's an emulator for it, and um, it was based on PowerPC, mm-hmm. and they've managed to emulate now every single game for it. So before they haven't had the GameCube games, mm-hmm. but now they've got them, and it's every single game apart from one. Which is this Star Wars game that they can't do because it's uh, doing a memory access or something. Star Wars The Clone Wars. A bit too complex, is it, to yeah, emulate? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but if if you check this Dolphin MU, mm-hmm. it, it also does Wii games. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, because yeah. the Wii essentially was the same hardware as the GameCube, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah at a hardware level it was. It's uh, Mac, Windows, Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is on all different kind of systems. And it looks really interesting. Well, I'm watching this video here on um, the article. Um, they've actually embedded a YouTube video on their official website, dolphin-mu.org. And uh, it runs so smooth. And the thing about it is as well, because the GameCube was obviously a standard death system, it looks like there's actually some upscaling here as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they'll be able to have mods or like, you know, scanline mode. They'll be able to have some enhancement mode or something. Well, it's cool because I've used like PlayStation 2 emulators and you can actually bump up PlayStation 2 games like 1080p and the textures look amazing. Do you remember Bleem? Yeah. Bleem where you'd have the PlayStation games on the Saturn. Yeah. And they'd it was look... on the Dreamcast. Oh, Dreamcast, Dreamcast yeah. sorry. <laughs> and they'd look a bit better. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's yeah. like, you know, I, I guess all the textures are there, but it's it's limited by the hardware, isn't it? So if you can upscale all that, it looks looks pretty cool. Yeah. And I think, you know, the GameCube, you can buy them pretty cheap now, though. I see them for about 20 quid, mm. the original systems. And kind of with Nintendo stuff, it does get to a stage where it gets really expensive. Like the N64 was cheap about five years ago, and now the prices of those is kind of going up now. But I bet, I bet you can also hook it up to something like Hyperspin, you know, and have now every single game on your GameCube and just have that in your collection of, every system ever you know it's a GameCube I mean if it, I, I, Mario Kart Double Dash is my favourite game on that system I like the Medal of Honor ones I thought you know because that's remember they came out and it was like first person shooter on a Nintendo yeah, console yeah. what's going on <laughs> <laughs> I think because of the way it looked a lot of people didn't give it a chance because it looked like a kiddies console didn't it um, but I think if you've never played one before, download this emulator and give some of the games a try because I think you'll be pleasantly surprised if you thought it was all about like Pokemon games and that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, I've actually got some more Nintendo news, and this is pretty cool. Obviously, um, Apple had a big announcement this week with the iPhone 7 getting announced on uh, Wednesday evening. Oh, yes, with no headphone ports, which is a big controversial <laughs> thing. Are you bothered about that? No, because every case that I've got for iPhones that have been waterproof always cover up the headphone port. So I guess... 
they've probably done it for that reason. So yeah, they can make it waterproof. Yeah, that is apparently the, one of the, well, they say one of the main reasons they did it. But also, I mean, I generally, you know, I tend to use the headphones that come with it anyway. And they're going to be bringing in, like, you know, lightning headphones with it, I'd imagine. So I know a lot of people are going ape over it online at the moment. No headphone jack. Well, I was thinking of getting a mini display the other day and just going <laughs> rocking that. <laughs> Proper old school. Yeah. I've still got one if you want to borrow some. Oh, Don't nice. know what's on my mini disc, some like old Britney Spears albums or something. Yeah, I was watching Tech Moan <laughs> after we had LGR on and he was like, mini disc. I was like, yeah. But, um, so basically, this new story is during the iPhone 7 announcement, they made a pretty surprising announcement, and there was someone there who you wouldn't expect to see at an Apple event. Oh, it's uh, Miyamoto Mi- was there. Miyamoto, yeah. Because Super Mario is coming to the iPhone. Yes, and I was uh, actually on Facebook earlier, mm-hmm. and I'd added Miyamoto because I want him on the podcast, but he's not responded. But he was posting some stuff about Mario, and yeah, yeah it's very interesting. I mean, I don't know if you've seen any of the footage of this game. Um, it's essentially a running game. So it's like, you know... the graphic... Oh, yeah, yeah, he posted that. That was it. It was like the Mario run, wasn't it? Yeah, that's what the game is. And then every single comment was like, I prefer Sonic Dash. And... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it is. I mean, you look graphically, it looks like the Wii U game. You know, really, really nice, modern-looking Mario game. But again, you know, you, you launch it, you start running, you tap to jump. That's essentially the game. It's yeah. like... I suppose Flappy Bird, when that came out, that was a pretty similar concept. And that looked like a Mario game, so <laughs> you could say maybe Mario deserved to... I don't think it would do a Pokemon Go, but I think it would still be a hit because it's Mario. Well, I think what's interesting about it is, though, that Nintendo are kind of opening their minds now to mobile and apps. And maybe, I mean, I've seen some people commenting that this might kind of be a backup plan in case the NX doesn't take off. Okay. You know? We need okay. to get on mobile in case, you know. Yeah, well, they're surprising us all the time, so we'll see what they pull out the bag for the NX. Absolutely. Now, uh, <laughs> this story blew my mind. I'm just going to read the headline here. Teenager buys a mainframe computer for a laugh and lands a job at Microsoft. Yeah. So basically, um, he ended up buying this, like, giant mainframe. I don't know where he got it from. Mm-hmm. This is some kid, is it, yeah? Yeah, yeah. This is some, like, 17-year-old kid. Okay. And he likes taking apart things, but not modern stuff. So he had this massive mainframe and it's like a beast you can climb inside it basically this is an ibm z890 mainframe computer and it weighs 1500 pounds so yeah it's, it's over five and a half feet tall yeah <laughs> so he paid 237 dollars for it mm-hmm. off an auction and uh he tinkered with it imagine eventually got it going and then was posting to some other mainframe enthusiasts and uh microsoft have kind of contacted him and put him on this, like, little apprenticeship. Oh, wow. Where he's, like, tinkering with things, exploring them, and kind of, you know, experimenting with Microsoft stuff. It's That's amazing, cool. though, isn't it? They, they just come across him and, like, <laughs> basically offered him, like, come and work for us, kid. I mean, to be fair, this is what big companies like that should be doing. Yeah. You know and, what I mean? And, you know, he sent the email, he says here, just to see what their reaction was. Mm-hmm. And their reaction was, we'll give you a job. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if, like, at 17, he's already getting in this kind of stuff. And it says here, apparently, his parents gave him his first computer when he was 18 months old. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was an IBM as well. So I don't know what he used it for when he was 18 months <laughs> yeah. old. But it's, I think that's awesome, though. And it's like, I think fair play to Microsoft for, for kind of seeing the potential in someone and being like, you know, we'll give you yeah, a shot, you know. just for being out there, like... You know, all his mates were developing Xboxes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he'll be there with his mainframe, you know. <laughs> Being a nerd does pay off. Yeah, totally. There you go. So, well, I'll pop your link in the show notes at theretrohour.com if you want to read more about that. It's a pretty long story, isn't it, that one? Yeah. Now, uh, before we get into this week's interview with Ben Vost, um, I thought this was pretty cool. Remember Defender of the Crown? Oh, yeah. Jim Sachs. Where Jim on, didn't we, the other week? Yeah, RJ Michael as well. Yeah, producer that cinema where, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, 
Did you know that that was actually developed for the ZX Spectrum as well? <laughs> Come on, I know there's a lot of bad versions of stuff. Well, not bad versions, there's cut down, reduced versions for the ZX Spectrum, but Defender of the Crown, really? Well, obviously the Amiga one was the main one that everyone remembers, but actually looking through the list here, it came out in DOS, came out in the NES, the Atari ST, Amstrad CPC, the Commodore 64, the Mac, the Apple II GS, even the sure CDI Jim Bagley's version. not done this one? <laughs> well, no, apparently this was made in 1986. Oh, wow. Okay, um, so back then. Yeah, and they'd had it in the archives and everything like that, but just never released it. Oh. So, obviously, I mean, I guess they maybe looked at the game and thought, you know, the Spectrum wasn't a big deal in, in America, was it? No. And, you know, I imagine someone did a port of this and then they decided not to release it for whatever reason. Maybe the Spectrum was seen as a bit old hat when 16-bit came along. Uh, but this has actually been found and uh, Cinemaware are now selling it. This is astonishing. <laughs> I, I'm just looking at the footage now. Yeah. And uh, I love the way that they've kind of, they've not gone for the realism. No, like you can't really on the spectrum. Just gone cartoon, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, a full-on cartoon version of Defender of the Crown. But they have got all, you know, the kind of the gist of the game is there. There's like a map where you move your character around. They've even got like the jousting bits are there as well. So are they actually going to release this as like a boxed full spectrum title? Well, this is um, an article on uh, one of our favourite news websites, Indie Retro News, and uh, according to Cinemaware, there's going to be two tapes that they're going to be releasing. So these are going to be released for 19.95, limited to 250 copies. Uh, one's going to be the game, and one's going to be the soundtrack. Yeah. So do you remember a lot of games that do that back in the day? You'd actually have the soundtrack on, the, on an audio yeah, cassette. On the you reverse. listen to it. Yeah, oh, yeah, you just listen to it on a hi-fi while you're playing the game. Yeah. So they're kind of doing that, and they're going to be there's pre-releases and pre-orders going on very soon, apparently. Um, but it is just like a game that's been in the archives for this long, and the fact that Cinema are now releasing it is, I think, that's insane. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, they're doing that Spectrum pack, uh, that Defender of the Crown pack, aren't mm -hmm. they? Yeah, with all of the versions. So maybe they were going for the archives, and they go, ah, oh, the Specky version we never released. Yeah, Let's so. chuck that on it. <laughs> that's awesome though. And it's uh, this full version of Defender of the Crown for the ZX Spectrum. Uh, we'll let you know when that's going to be released. And if you want to find out more information, we'll hook you up in the show notes at theretrohour.com. And thank you so much for checking. Checking out episode number 36, we'll be out again next Friday, available from all your favourite podcast clients, SoundCloud, YouTube, all of the usual places. And for the next half an hour or so then, here he is, the guy who was the last editor of Amiga Format magazine. We're going to get seriously Amiga nerdy now, aren't we? Oh yeah, God, it's Ben Vost. Ben Vost on the Retro Hour, and we'll catch you again next Friday. Ben Speaks! You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is a pleasure to welcome to this week's show. And now, Ravi and I used to read Amiga Format magazine religiously. Back oh, I've in the still day. got loads in my uh, living room. <laughs> and we've got the guy on there who is actually the last ever editor of Amiga Format, Ben Vost. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dan. Uh, I'm pleased to be here. It's quite a surprise that anybody wants to talk about Amiga Format, but I'm glad. Well, I mean, let's start right at the beginning of your story then, Ben. What first got you into computers then? What was your first experience with one? The, the, the weird thing is that when I was growing up, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And this is before Indiana Jones. So I was learning <laughs> Latin and ancient Greek. And I was doing classical civilization at school. And I'd been on several archaeological digs and all the rest of it. And then at the school I was at, the grammar school in Colchester, um, I had access to the computer lab and just for fun i went to the computer lab and started playing with their bbc model b's i got quite excited about it because 
this is probably going back before your time a long way, they had the sideways ROM for uh, speech synthesis. And it was done with Richard Baker's voice. And Richard Baker was the newsreader on the BBC. And for, for whatever reason, I can't remember why now, there was a group of about seven or eight of us and we decided to do a barbershop quartet with these BBCs that we had in our school. We had 13 of them and we had four doing voices and uh, six doing music. And it was uh, when I say music, it was like tone generation more than anything. Uh, and we were on a token ring network we had to synchronize it all manually by, you know, hitting the space bar all at the same time. That was a, that was a huge thing for us. Uh, it took us, you know, a good few weeks of actually working hard at it to, to make it work. But that really got me into computers. And then I got a ZX81, uh, missed out on the Spectrum, had friends with Commodore 64s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then as one of my first Saturday jobs, I worked for a... A small computer shop in Colchester, uh, and we were selling games. You know the the cassettes mm-hmm. for eight bit systems and the new sixteen bit systems. So my first proper computer was an Atari ST, a five twenty STFM. Yeah, all, all of our Amiga yeah. fans are disgusted. Now. <laughs> no, no, but uh, I'll tell you why. Because at that point, the Amiga five hundred was five hundred quid. Yeah. As soon as it came down to 400 quid, 399.99, I think it was the Batman pack, or it might have been before that, I had to have one straight away. So I sold my ST along with the mini bits of software I'd accumulated for it. Um, not always in strictly legal ways, obviously. <laughs> um, sold it all for to get my Amiga. Uh, and because I was working in the shop, I got it at a discount as well. So it meant that me as a small person uh, could afford to buy this brand new Amiga. I even got a a one meg RAM pack for it because back in the day uh, there was a single repairs company uh, that did all the repairs for Commodore and they sent me back a shipment of repaired computers and included with it they put four uh, one meg or half meg RAM packs for no apparent reason. They certainly weren't something I was waiting for. Well, just install uh, them with, the, without even asking. No, didn't That's install crazy. them. They were oh. just in the bundle with right, it. Okay. So I, I said, right, I'll have one of those then. <laughs> uh, and um, so that was what got me started. And then I got a hard drive and accelerator card. And uh, by the time I've got no Amigas now at all, I I only have uh, Win UAE. I don't even have Amiga Forever, although. Uh, uh, Michele Battiana is a good friend of mine from Cloanto who mm-hmm. makes Amiga Forever. Well, you mentioned your Amiga 500 then. I mean, you know, it's hard for people yeah. to imagine now, but I remember I got an Amiga 500 Plus. I think it was Christmas 91 I got mine. And yeah. I had a Commodore Plus 4 before that, and a megabyte of memory was a lot back then, wasn't it? I oh, yeah, thinking, absolutely. You're never going to use all that RAM. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, at that point, Bill Gates was saying 640K should be enough for anyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, but, what kind of stuff were you doing on the Amiga? Were you like playing games or were you using apps and stuff? I did play games. I, I pretty much everyone played games to start off with, obviously. But uh, I think my favourite application, favourite, was Art Department Pro uh, by uh, ASDG. 
um, which was like a forerunner to Photoshop, only you couldn't change the individual pixels. And Deluxe Paint 3 and 4, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were huge. After I'd left Soft Sellers, uh, which is the computer shop uh, and everything, uh, I ended up working for a company called HB Marketing, which was the biggest, well, in fact, it, it was the only serious software uh distributor for the uk um and that meant that i worked with all the big companies like asg dg and the brothers that made the halverson brothers that made imagine and in fact that's what got me into 3d uh in the first place was um turbo silver and uh then imagine and uh, real 3d and of course lightwave although we couldn't buy lightwave in the UK at the time. Well, I remember you gave away Imagine on um, Amiga Format. It's probably one of the earlier yeah. ones, but um, I yes, tried running that was. on like a one megabyte Amiga 500. It took quite a while to render, but it was very impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and I did it as well. You know, it was 24 hours to wait for the uh, chrome ball on the checkered floorboard uh, with the sky kind of thing behind <laughs> it. Uh, I remember those times very well. Uh, that wasn't me, though. That was my predecessor, uh, Nick Veach, mm-hmm. who gave that away. Um, I And that issue sold 272,000 copies wow wow that's insane <laughs> that's a huge number isn't it yeah and i managed to ride amiga format down from that to 13,469 <laughs> that's good that's good work that then <laughs> yeah well i'm quite proud should we uh, start from the beginning and uh, how did you get a job at future publishing oh well uh once HB Martin closed, I went to work for Micropace, which is an American company that had a UK office for a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they closed as well. Just as they were closing, I got invited to go and work on Amiga Computing up in Manchester, Macclesfield, for IDG Publications, uh, because I was already known as, as a, a big deal in the Amiga community, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um from IDG, from being up in Macclesfield, uh, I went to a computer show in London, and at that point, I got approached by Nick uh, and his editor at the time, Paul Pettengale, uh, and they said to me, would you like to come and work for Amiga Format instead? You know, I'd not been headhunted before, so it was quite an appealing prospect. I packed my things from uh, Manchester and um, moved down to Bath. And that's how I ended up working at Future. So what, what year were we talking then when you started at Future? 1996, I mm-hmm. think that was. So I know Future, obviously, the Amiga was a big deal to them. They had like sister magazines to Amiga format, like Amiga Power and Amiga Shopper, yeah. um, which were, were still going around that time, weren't they? 96, I think Shopper yeah, closed yeah. down that year, didn't it, at the end of it? But um, was it kind of like... No, no, it was, it was a little bit later, 98, I think. Was it? Okay, yeah. yeah. So obviously going there, I mean, Amiga Format was such a big deal. I mean, at one time I read it was the biggest consumer magazine in Britain. Yeah. Um, what was it like going to work for them then? When when I was at Macclesfield in, in uh, IDG, that, that's a huge publishing company. I mean, really massive. Uh, not so much for the Amiga, but in general for consumer magazines and trade magazines around the world. They, they are very well known. Um, and so... Going to Future was a bit like the new kid on the block because uh, Future Publishing was only started uh, 20 years before and 
uh, was doing things right, if you like. It was it was very fresh and new. Uh, back at uh, IDG, I was used to using uh, Quark Express for doing layout in in the magazines and stuff. And moving to future, uh, we were still using Quark for the time being, but we moved over to InDesign uh, and things like that. So it uh, it was very much an Adobe shop, mm-hmm. uh, and at the time it was there were new stuff like. Uh, using pdfs as masters rather than having to print to to film for sending to for publishing uh, for printing and future was a massive company and it was very young as well um there i think when i joined there were probably 600 staff and basically bath was future town Uh, there were so many pubs and bars and clubs and cinemas and stuff like that uh, not principally because bath is also a, a big university town and everything but a lot of it was to take money away from future mm-hmm. staff uh because we had the cash it's quite a small place as well isn't it bath so, yeah. <laughs> you know. yeah eighty thousand uh, a city of eighty thousand people and it's a city now it wasn't it was just a town then but it's a city now so the environment must have been um interesting how were they really kind of positive on the amiga or did they kind of see it as a fad or by the time i joined uh amiga format was was going down already i think when i when i first started the readership was like thirty-five thousand. so i didn't kill the amiga format i didn't you know drop <laughs> it from two hundred seventy-two thousand down and it was obviously past its sell-by date if you like uh and they were looking around for other stuff. They, they, they had other things that were already going. Um, while I was there, one of their other huge titles started, which was Computer Arts, mm. uh, which you may have seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was actually started in part because of Amiga Format, if you like, because they what, what Future used to do, uh, and probably still do, uh, is do a tester, you know, like a pilot episode of a TV program to see if people like it. Uh, and Computer Arts was uh, started off as a special. One of the things that we, we that Future tried, I keep saying we, but I, I haven't worked at Future for, for a long time, was this Computer Arts magazine because Photoshop and all the rest of it. Um, and one of the, the stories in it that I wrote for this pilot uh, magazine uh, was about Babylon 5 that was in this pilot magazine and it was enough to get the magazine started and and also don't don't forget that uh, amiga format gave the start in publishing for a lot of people as well that that weren't necessarily amiga fans uh but uh that's how they got to be where they are in publishing well talking about 1996 when you started i mean obviously the playstation was out by then and um you must have been no no it must have been before i started then because i saw another magazine that came out was edge Mm -hmm. and uh one of the main things for edge was the playstation and so i got to use some of the um the the pre-release playstations these big boxes that they had i played tomb raider before it was available Mm -hmm. and stuff like that um so yes i mean definitely uh the the playstation was a huge thing in killing off the amiga i was going to say what was kind of the you know the guys that worked on the playstation mags for example what was their kind of attitude to amiga format then at that at that time well don't forget that some of them have come from amiga format um and uh likewise for n64 magazine and stuff like that um they had been 
Amiga format people, especially the game side, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think that Amiga format, even towards the end of its life, was seen as the, the grand old lady of future publishing. There was a, a, a lot of, I don't want to say love, that seems too lovey uh, for it, but uh, there, was a, there was a lot of good feeling about Amiga format generally through future. Of course, as it got smaller and smaller, it meant that there were more and more people at future who had never worked on it, who didn't know about it, and so on and so forth. So, And, and also future started going in completely other directions with magazines. Uh, there were bike magazines and there were car magazines and other stuff like that. Um, so uh, there were people who had never heard of Amiga format, if you like, even before I'd left. Well, um, the Amiga got a slight breath of uh, extra life when um, Total Wormage was released, uh, the cover disc on Amiga format, and it eventually became Worms. So you probably joined around a year after Worms came out. So there must yeah. have still been a bit of a scene going on. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, one of my fondest things to do was to go to uh, Cologne in October for the Cologne Messe, uh, which is this huge show. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever been to Amiga shows particularly, but... Yeah. Uh, a World of Amiga 99 I went to in 2001. Uh, in in London, those ones. Uh, yeah, the London ones, yeah. Yeah, and, and there were probably, what, about 10,000 people, maybe yeah. 15,000, something like that. Um, well, the World of Amiga shows in Cologne, it was more like 250,000 people. Mm, and people would come from all over the world to go to the show. It was just an amazing thing. And also the show, I, I don't know what to compare it to, um, it would kind of be on the scale of Wembley Stadium, the size of the show, and that would be full of uh, stands. I, I remember a certain point in the UK ones as well where uh, we, we had massive big shows and then suddenly one show was at a hotel and then it started to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And yeah. uh, uh, how were you feeling at the time? Could you just see it all diminishing? And uh, Yeah, kind of, be... I kind of could. Uh, I, I knew it was happening. I, I didn't want to admit it to myself. Um, the, the Amiga was uh, very important to me uh, and to the point at which when I, I remember distinctly that when we closed the magazine, um, I came home on that last day in the office and I was just inconsolable. Uh, I I just lay down on, on my bed uh, in, in our flat in Bath and uh, my wife just she tried to comfort me, but she just left me alone and I was sobbing. I really was just, just sobbing about it um, because it wasn't just that the magazine was closing. Uh, it was because this thing that I'd given so much of my life to w- was over, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and it, it was very sad. And it was so drawn out and uh, kind yeah. of slow and painful, wasn't it? <laughs> I was going to yeah, say, yeah. you know, the, the mid to late 90s were a stressful time to be an Amiga user. I mean, obviously, after Commodore, we had um, SCOM came along for a year. I mean, what, what did you kind of think of SCOM's efforts? You kind of want to hope for the best, always. SCOM weren't very useful for the Amiga, uh, generally. Uh, Amiga Inc. were more useful. Petro Tyshenko was a good guy, mm-hmm. and he, he wanted it to, to work. Uh, but the the problem was that um, 
all Dave Haney's designs for the AAA chipset and all the rest of it never happened. I, I saw them breadboarded. I saw prototype machines. Uh, I saw prototype machines, uh, uh, prototype versions of uh, Workbench 4.5 and, and 5. It, it wasn't really done at that point. Um, with things like retargetable graphics as uh, built in from the start and... 3D as as a, a big a huge thing because obviously uh, the Amiga uh, was was rubbish in uh, in quotes uh, at 3D. Well, how um, did you how did you feel when Escom went under then? By then it was it was obvious that the writing was on the wall that there was going to be nothing that that could be done, mm-hmm. um, and I was looking around for something else to do, and, and still hoping for the best, but knowing in my heart of hearts that it was just not going to happen. Um, yeah, great shame. <laughs> Blimey, I, I, it's still getting me. That's that's really weird. I didn't think it would. Well, I mean, you know, we talked about the final days of Amiga Format in those last few years. And on yeah. a more positive note, I'd say now I read Amiga Format from like 1991 up until your last issue in 2000. And I really do think those last few years, though, were some of the best you guys ever put out. And I mean, obviously, there was at one point the change to, you know, from floppy disk to cover mounted CDs as well on the um, yeah. on the covers. Was that yeah. a bit of a significant change? And I imagine doing a you know monthly CD back in like the mid 90s must have been quite an involved process. It, it was an involved process. Definitely. I mean, I, I used to do the first ones and then uh, Matt used to do the other one. Once I'd got it going, he uh, we hired a new guy to to actually do the cover CDs. Mm-hmm. It was a case of trying to find stuff to put on them as well. And at that time, 650 megabytes was an enormous amount of stuff to fill up a CD with each month. Thankfully, we had Aminet and all the rest of it that that meant that, um, (laughs) I don't want to say shovelware, Mm -hmm. but uh, it was certainly made it easier to, to fill up the whole disk. Because at that time as well, not everyone had internet connections or modem connections. It was just dial-up, and it was expensive as well, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and but it might have only been dial-up to a local BBS. There was, a, uh, I think, a few Amiga ISPs later on, but they were tiny. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. No, but I mean, even if you you joined one of, because I was with Demon from '91, I think, because I've been using the internet uh, for a long time, and uh, before. Uh, eyebrows and all the rest of them i was using uh before the web i was using gopher mm-hmm. uh through amiga guide uh, so pe- people but people didn't in the main have internet connections so that cd was a, a great boon for them i found also that one great thing was the readers and kind of submissions of software because the main companies were not really releasing that much so it's good to yeah. see all this pd stuff coming out and you know user created community stuff definitely and it it was a a huge advantage uh for the magazine that amiga format had such a good name uh in the sense that people were not throwing stuff at us but were quite willing to cut us a deal on being able to do demo versions of their software or or uh, give us software free of charge, etc., to put on the cover disc, and especially since the Imagine and various other applications that that we did do, I think Image Effects mm-hmm. um, meant that there was uh, a precedent for it, and people knew that uh, it was worth their while to talk to us about it. Uh, those 
negotiations were always uh, involved, but both sides were going into it with a good expectation. One of the most intriguing parts of the um, Amiga format CDs for me, and I used to spend ages looking at these, was, um, you know, you, you mentioned then that not everyone had internet access. A lot of the time we'd just tweak our workbench. And you had, like, user screen grabs of workbench screens in there, yeah. didn't you, for a while? Where, where did yeah. that idea come from then? Because that was so interesting, looking at those. That was one of mine. I think it might have been Dan's. I'm not sure. But um, the whole point was that Amiga Format was a shrinking community, and it was a community. It was uh, There was such great interaction with the users, with the readers, uh, that doing workbench screen grabs was a great way of actually showing off stuff. I, I kind of wish that we'd um, had annotated screen grabs. But, of course, it wasn't as easy in those days um, to do. And also a lot of people had uh, just 640 by uh, uh, 512 uh, as their screen resolutions uh, rather than the the many thousands of pixels we have now. Um, And even 640 by 256 uh, for for high-res non-interlaced. Uh, and and it was fantastic though that we didn't feel limited at all by it. And and let's face it, nobody did because uh, PC resolution was 640 by 480. So we could go Haha, at 512, we're better than you. Yeah. Well, what did you think of Amiga Formats sister magazines when they were around? Then, like Amiga Power and Amiga Shopper. Amiga Shopper, I I used to read r- religiously all the time uh, from from the start of uh, the very first issue. Um, Amiga Power, I was never interested in particularly because I didn't didn't play mini games on my Amiga. After the f- first initial flush, as soon as I discovered more interesting things like uh, art stuff and you know having a hard drive, when most games weren't hard drive installable, they became less interesting to me. Um, so I never read Amiga Power, and I know that had crazy stuff in it always. But Amiga Shopper, I, I loved to to the end. <laughs> Did you guys all like hang out together as well then, all being like Amiga fans? Uh, Amiga Power guys uh, kind of kept to themselves, and then they were more interested. Because the thing was that Future Publishing, uh, we were separated into buildings all over town. Um, admittedly, all in a small area of the town, but all over town. Uh, and it meant that we didn't see each other because the Amiga Power guys were in the games building, if you like. Uh, so they were the first people to see the uh, uh, the consoles, the new consoles, uh, the N64s and, and Playstations and stuff. And that's how we learned about them uh, over on Amiga Format and went to see them. And obviously the guys on Amiga Shopper weren't interested anyway because it was just frivolous. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd probably say the, the last company whilst Amiga Format was going to take over the Amiga was Gateway. Um how were you optimistic when they took over? No, uh, and they never talked to us. You know that this was a magazine that had been kind of important to the Amiga uh, community and industry uh, for a long time, and they didn't really want anything to do with us. I remember how this was so. Jim Collis, a guy, wasn't it? He was kind of like Jim Collis, yeah, yeah. He was going to be like he was like an evangelist for the Amiga. Then what? I, I always thought you know they're going to do at least something with it. Then he just kind of vanished, and it all just nothing happened, did it? Was it yeah, Fleecy exactly. Moss as well? Yeah. No, Fleecy Moss was afterwards. He, oh, okay. he was okay. he was also... Because uh, part of the problem with the Amiga was also when it 
killed itself by not being sure of what to do. So uh, Fleecy Moss was part of the group that wanted absolutely to do a PowerPC Amiga. Uh, and nobody wanted an Intel Amiga because Intel is PC and that's Microsoft and, you know, that's that's death, uh, et cetera. I remember the we- Intel Outside stickers all Amiga fans had, didn't exactly. they? Exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. What, what did you think of the whole um, keep the momentum going? But uh, what did you think of that whole campaign? I, I was, it seems really uh, odd for me to say, but I was above it all. Mm-hmm. Uh the problem was that um, they didn't seem like serious people to me. Uh, and I didn't think, because there was so much uh, internecine uh, squabbling going on, I didn't think it was going to actually help the Amiga in any way. Also, they weren't doing the things I wanted, if you see what I mean. Mm. So I didn't want to have anything to do with them, in a way. Sounds odd, but... Well, I remember at one time you gave away... Um... It was like a demo version of QNX on um, on the Amiga yeah. format CD, didn't you? And that, at the time, yeah. I remember a lot of talk about that kind of being the foundation for the next Amiga operating yeah. system. I mean, what what was the kind of story behind that then? Uh, QNX is um, a version of Unix that's... What you have to remember is the Amiga was kind of a real-time operating system. Mm-hmm. Um, Workbench, one less so, but certainly two and three uh, were quite... Uh, real-time was quite important to them. Which is why on the Amiga uh, you could do things like uh, pulling the screen down to reveal another screen behind it. And you always felt in control because the user had priority over everything. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Windows, the user only has priority over some things, which is why you can sit there waiting for stuff and why you click and click and nothing happens. Um, Whereas for the Amiga the most important thing in the uh, operating system is whatever you want to do. Windows still hasn't got that in Windows 10. And uh, Qnix was the best way to to do that uh, because unlike most Unix installations, uh, it had that real-time aspect to it uh, because Qnix was used by NASA for a lot of stuff. And obviously there you need to have instant feedback for the users especially if they're you know people like space shuttle pilots they don't want to sit there with the uh weight pointer going around when they're (laughs) trying to re-enter earth's atmosphere or anything well Um, cunix really blew my mind when i got the floppy disk and just put it in my mum's pc and then was able to boot this fast real-time operating system i really thought there was something there yeah and uh it all seemed to kind of collapse again. It, well, it, but this was part of the internecine struggles that the Amiga Inc. had, that, that um, they were pulling in different directions and they were, it saddens me to say, but they were listening to the users too much. So there were too many vested interests saying, no, we want this, no, we want this, no, we want this. Uh, and they just didn't go, well, yeah, but we're the bosses and we'll do this. Well, Ben, this one might be a bit of a difficult one, but, you know, say in a dream world, if you were back then the boss of Amiga Inc., what would you have done? Well, it's difficult to say now because, obviously, with hindsight, I would say uh, go x86, you know, go Intel or AMD, whichever you prefer. Uh, But do that. Do the switch from uh, Big Endian to Little Endian uh, for the processor. 
uh, which would be painful, but it would be achievable, uh, and open Workbench up to being available for other platforms. I think that would have been the most important thing to do because Workbench was a fantastic bit of software, absolutely brilliant. And even now, you know, it drives me insane to think that if I name a JPEG file on Windows, if I name it image.pdf and I double click on it, it's going to try and open it with Acrobat. I still don't you know, feel the same on Windows as I did with Meager eyes. Those feel... d- data types, wasn't it, that did it on the Amiga? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and it was also looking at the header for the file. Mm-hmm. You know, files all have headers. And in the header, in the first eight bytes or something, it will say image uh, IFF format or, you know, image JPEG format. Uh, so rather than looking at something that can be easily faked, i.e. the file extension, uh, look at the actual file itself, stupid kids. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the updatability of it. Like, you know, you could just add a new device, add a new yeah. library, and it would just work. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, before, you know, Apple kind of purloined the, the idea of it just works. Uh, before on the plug Amiga, and play, it wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Well, you know those exactly. um, those late nineties years when you were um, at Amiga Format. Then, I mean, the community really kind of got together because it was a lot smaller back then. I felt, but obviously, Amiga Format was kind of the glue that held it all together. I mean, you used to go to user groups and all that kind of thing as well, didn't you? Quite regularly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it it became a club, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and that was part of the problem. We were becoming a bigger and bigger fish in a smaller and smaller pond, uh, and it was. Uh, quite problematic in terms of survivability. Uh, And uh, let me just grab something. One of the things that I have... Oh, there you go. I don't know if you can see this okay. The AAA Award, okay. Yeah. That's cool. So so this was uh, my award for being the, the best Amiga user. For his continued and dedicated support of Amiga users, both in and outside his role within the Amiga press. And that was 1999, and that was uh, Martin Salen and Andrew Elia, um, who gave me that in, in front of uh, probably the largest gathering at that time of Amiga users. Um, you know, a couple of thousand people that were still left, um, and that was in London, I think. Yeah. Well, by the time we'd reached this point, there was only two mainstream Amiga magazines in the shops, you, um, Amiga Format, and CU Amiga, and obviously they were the first to go. Was that a bit of a shock to the system when CU closed? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, we always had a rivalry with with Tony and and the guys there, uh, obviously, because we were going after the same people, if you like. But yes, it it was a shame when, when they closed the mag. Uh, they still covered stuff that we didn't and vice versa. You saw that, that cover of the magazine that was welcoming of CU Amiga readers. Yeah, for people um, who didn't see that, you actually sent me over a mock-over and in the corner you actually actually had that, didn't you? A welcome to CU Amiga users. Yeah. And will, will you be able to put that picture? Yeah, we've well, the... well, on our Facebook page, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, cool. and okay. on the site. Yeah. This was a, a magazine cover that you designed for. It was issue, what, 117, but you never used it in the end? That's right, yeah. Uh, there was It was an issue cover that I rendered in Lightwave uh, and it was for uh, celebrating ISDN as, as yeah. you can see from the cover uh, ridiculously and on the corner on the flash it said welcome to a warm welcome to see you Amiga readers 
uh, on the grounds that we wanted to have them reading our magazine, if nothing else. And I think we got an uptick in the readership of a, of a few thousand, but okay. uh, it wasn't that many because we figured that people were probably buying both magazines anyway. Well, obviously, you know, in those like later years, was it difficult finding news topics to cover and uh, you know software to write about? Uh, in the last year or two, it did become quite difficult. I had to write an article, a review of my Epson printer that I'd bought, um, not because it had any Amiga-related things, but uh, because I'd lost a page because of something or other, and so needed to write, come up with a thousand words very quickly, and so wrote that that review, uh, which wasn't a great review either. Um, so. Yeah, it was definitely getting tight. Well, one thing that you did bring in around that time that I thought was really cool was um, reader reviews. And I know actually one of our regular listeners, um, Gaz Murfin. Gaz actually did one of your first ones. Gareth Murphy. Yeah, yes, he, I lis- remember he listens every week, well. does Gareth. Um, <laughs> Hi to Gareth. So, uh, yeah, what, what kind of, was that kind of what inspired bringing in the reader reviews? Because they were really interesting to get like someone's outside perspective on stuff. Absolutely. Well, I mean, part of it, was also that I was yet one of the only people writing in the magazine. So part of it was just to lighten my load a little. Uh, but yes, also because uh, I think it started because we had a really uh, incisive letter about um, some product or other. Uh, and it was very extensive. And I just thought, you know, if this had pictures, if this was an actual review rather than being a letter about a product that would be really good. So we did so. And also, and apologies to Gareth, um, people who, readers who wrote reviews were cheaper than uh, <laughs> freelancers who reviews, if you sort of mean. It was just too cool to get published, though, as a reader, you know what I mean? It was like, wow. Yeah, I, I never did, but I think definitely. I sent you one in, you never printed it, though, I don't think, but it was probably awful. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we didn't like you, Dan. That, yeah, that, that, that would have been it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've got a screenshot in there, so that's all right. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Well, obviously, you know, when Nick left, you became the last editor of Amiga Format then. What was it kind of like taking over such an iconic title? I'd been his deputy editor for a time because uh, when I was on Amiga Computing, I was the editor. Uh, and then when Nick asked me to come to work on Amiga Format, I, uh, it was as the deputy editor and I was quite happy to do so. So I'd had, uh, I don't know, a year and a half of bedding in uh, and... As it was, Nick was handing over, uh, not that I perceived it at the time, but Nick was handing over more and more responsibility for the title to me. Uh, so doing the final step of taking over just seemed like a natural progression. It wasn't um, it wasn't anything unusual. Uh, when Nick left, I think we had six, yeah, we had six people working on the magazine. So he was the seventh person. He left and then just the six of us left. Uh, so it was me. Uh, an art editor, a deputy art editor, a sub-editor, the disc editor, Matt, whose name I will remember, obviously, after it's too late, Um, and uh, one other person, oh, an advertising manager, I think. As that last uh, year or so where I was the editor happened, we were losing staff. You know, first thing to go was the advertising manager, uh, because there weren't enough pages of advertising. The magazine went down from, I think, 130 pages or something when I took over, and we finished on 72. And, and obviously you had the, the regulars, like Power Computing, always had a double-page spread, 
and usually the inside front cover or the inside back cover. The number of pages in your magazine is dependent on the number of advertising pages uh, because if you don't get enough advertising, then you could write, I could write, you know, uh, a 300 page magazine, 300 page magazine. However, the cost of it would be too great against the amount you're recouping from the advertising and also from the sales of the magazine. It became evident that um, things were going downhill at a fairly rapid rate. So when did you know it was all over? Uh, my publisher, Paul Pettengale, uh, took me for a beer and this was six months before it was the final issue. And he said, there's not much more we can do with Amiga format. And there will come a point at which it will close. And I kind of said, yes, yeah, I know. Still thinking there might be one last you know, magic trick to pull out of the bag. Um, and there wasn't. Were you amazed to find uh, an extra magazine called Amiga Active coming out in 1999 to 2001 in all the major shops as well? No, because I knew who was doing it. I mean, it was it was the CU Amiga guys as much as anything. Uh, and I also knew that um, it wasn't going to last very long. Mm-hmm. Because although they, they really wanted to, to do the magazine and it was very much a labour of love, it didn't have the backing of a big company behind it. Uh, and it wasn't going to be able to, to succeed. So when you left Future then... Um... Mm. What did you do next then? Did you, did you keep up with the Amiga at all then? Or was it like pretty much I need to stop looking at this now and have a clean break? The, the funny thing is that um, we were living in Bath, obviously, uh, at the time. And when Amiga format closed and I had my weepy period, afterwards uh, we said, like, well, what's next then? Because we knew that we had to move away from Bath because it was an expensive place to live. Mm-hmm. Um it meant that uh, we were going to have to pack stuff up. So selling my Amiga stuff uh, was kind of just a a part of moving out of the house. And I still have, down here on my shelf somewhere, uh, I still have a a quantum hard drive. It's less than a gigabyte. I think it's 850 meg, which is my last Amiga hard drive, which is quite something. I haven't looked at it in uh, over a decade. And so when Amiga Format closed, I still carried on working at Future because um, it wasn't Amiga Format closing that killed killed it all. But we And we were living in Bath in this huge flat. Um, so I kept all my Amiga stuff. Um, but I needed to buy a PC for what I was going to do next, which was uh, become deputy editor of 3D World magazine, uh, which was an offshoot of computer arts. Uh, and so... I did that, and my Amiga was sitting side by side on the desk. Uh, but because of what I needed to do, it was getting used less and less. And when uh, I took voluntary redundancy from Future because they offered it uh, to all manner of people, it wasn't going to be able to go with me to where I was going to go to next. Uh, so I sold my Amiga to Power Computing. And at that point, it was quite a monster. It was in a, it was an A four thousand T, because cause before it, I had my favourite ever computer, my best computer in the whole time I've ever had a computer. Although this one comes pretty close, which was an A three thousand T, 
Nice. Oh, very nice. God. Yeah. Yeah, nice. They're massive yeah. as well, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, and weighed a, a ton. Uh, and the 3000T was a beautiful piece of kit. Um, the SCSI on that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. it's so fast. Uh, and SCSI 3 uh, by, uh, by default. Um, and, well, no, it was the SCSI 2. Oh, I don't remember. Anyway, it also had um, <laughs> it had zips, uh, which were zigzag inline pin packages for memory, which were these tiny little memory chips with these uh, eight pins hanging down off them were extremely fragile, and you had to put them into your motherboard. And there was no none of this uh, zero insertion force rubbish at that time. It was... Uh, heart in your throat trying to put this memory in and uh, the only thing that w- made it better was once I had the, the 16 meg I could have a fast memory on that um, was the fact that I got a 6860 card from phase 5 because I uh, because of me going to Cologne and, and once a year for several years I got to know Wolf Dietrich really well at phase five, the boss of phase five, uh, he was really good to me. And uh, I, I never liked the Cybervision, which was his graphics card. Uh, I was always Villagetronic for the Picasso, uh, which was kind of a bone of contention, but he didn't mind. <laughs> and so uh, I'd saved up enough money to buy uh, a 6840 processor card from him to put into my 3000T. I said to him, look, here's the cash and... Uh, can I have a, a 6840 card? Because uh, I went to see him uh, at his place in Frankfurt. Uh, and he said, no, I can't take cash from you. Uh, it's a German business thing. And to be honest, if somebody came to me and gave me cash for something, I wouldn't be able to do it either. Um, so uh, it seemed really weird. And he said, look, this is a brand new 6860. It's just off the presses. You can have that for the same price uh and i said okay but what am i going to do with this cash and he said we'll take it home and sort me out a check or something Mm -hmm. uh so in effect he gave me that 6860 card because he never cashed the check that i spent uh ages trying to sort out with the bank uh and obviously it was in deutschmarks at the time rather than euro and they were expensive Uh, cards as well weren't they back then oh yeah absolutely so i had raised enough money to buy the 25 megahertz uh, 6840 card and the 40 megahertz one was out already so i was thinking oh maybe because he likes me he'll give me the 40 megahertz one <laughs> instead he gave me the 50 megahertz 6860 which was what, eight times faster than the 25 megahertz 6840 mm-hmm. um and he gave it to me for free <laughs> amazing and it had 16 meg on board and there were sims as well and it was like what the hell, you know, you just plug it in and you just clip it down. Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> and all this time I've been going, ah, with these uh, zips. <laughs> uh, they, so, yeah. if, if you had that today, that would go for an absolute fortune. Now, Amiga hardware, like on eBay and stuff like that, it goes through the roof. Now, people pay like £1,500 for like old PowerPC accelerators and stuff. It's, wow. It's cra- do, do you keep uh, up with the scene at all today? Uh, not really, no, because um, it hurt too much. For a long time, it hurt too much, so I I couldn't go near it. And in fact, uh, just recently, uh, one of my buddies in the Lightwave world 
gave me a copy of Win UAE, UAE uh, fully loaded. So it's got Art Department Pro. It's got um, Professional Page by ASDG. It's got Lightwave mm-hmm. 3.5, obviously, um, and various other things on it. And I fired it up the other day and thought, oh, this is like being at home. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, clicking on the left hand side of a window to close the, uh, close the window and stuff like that just just little things the fact that i can change the language because the locale settings Mm -hmm. really easily uh all this stuff that was before its time well you can actually you know you said you've got your old amiga hard disk you can hook that up and load it into win uae i know i know i I could do except i've got to have a scuzzy uh, controller for it well uh (laughs) one thing's quite interesting because as we're talking to you the amiga scenes just suddenly kicked off again so it's taken all this time (laughs) for new kind of amazing classic hardware coming out and with uh, fpgas now you can basically increase what is it it's an amiga 600 a card came out called the vampire i don't know if you've read about this it costs 130 okay. euros you open yeah. your amiga 600 place it over the top of the 68k it puts it up to 120 megahertz um it's got <laughs> from what, eight yeah from, from <laughs> yeah from eight megahertz um it's got something like what is it 256 megabytes on board. Yeah. It's got RTG, HDMI, HDMI out. output, 16 bits audio processor on there. It's like, it's That's insane. Crazy. Yeah. It's no. kind yeah. of being made in a garage in Germany, which I kind of prefer <laughs> than these uh, big companies now, you know. Oh, that's that's kind of it, isn't it? That's that's exactly... I mean, the, the German Amiga scene was always far more vibrant than the UK one mm-hmm. uh, in terms of... Uh, the serious side, you know, for, for demos and for games, etc. The UK was the top, uh, but for for the with the German guys, they they did some amazing stuff. Well, Ben, you wow. mentioned um, Lightwave, and obviously for people that might not know, that's that's kind of your full time job now, then, isn't it? And you, you're living in France, so yeah. why what are you doing these days then? Well, uh, I'm writing the documentation for for Lightwave, and, I, and after Amiga Format, after 3D World. And when I left uh, Future Publishing and moved over to the other side of the country, to Kent, um, I, I went to a show in, in Denmark called the 3D Festival uh, and uh, met a chap there, uh, a French guy, Franck Lafarge, and it turns out that he did the same job as me in France that I did in the UK. So I was working for HB Marketing and doing serious software and hardware and he was doing the same thing for a company in france called guimo uh spelt uh, guillemot uh and um so we got chatting at 3d festival and he said oh you know you should really come and work for me and i thought it was just a pub offer you know one of those things where you put your arm around a, a guy you've met for the first time in a pub yeah. and you're both pissed <laughs> and you go oh you should work with me mate it's fantastic uh and so i thought okay well maybe and so he asked again and i said well okay but if you like and so he asked again and i thought well three times is a promise so i said well buy me a ticket then and so he flew me over uh to here and went to see see him and it wasn't an interview it was like this is what you're going to be doing when you start working here oh, wow. uh so uh that that was it uh and uh we've lived here ever since uh the company was new tech europe and uh obviously lightwave was a huge part of their portfolio 
of products. I carried on supporting Lightwave because I'd been using it since 3.5 on the Amiga. Mm-hmm. Um, it meant that I was familiar with it and obviously at 3D World as well. And so since Lightwave 9, I've been working with them on documentation. It's kind of my full-time job. It, it's uh, I spend a lot of time doing it, but also I work um, at an art school in uh, a town near here uh, where I teach youngsters or they're not youngsters they're they're 20 somethings mm-hmm. uh light wave and photoshop and general computers and stuff well ben so it's, it's, had, it's awesome that you're doing something with an amiga legacy though because i mean obviously light wave came out of the amiga and that, that, that's really cool i think yeah definitely and and uh, because you contacted me dan and uh we we started speaking i started listening to your podcast and uh going back through it it sort of brought back memories but they didn't hurt anymore Mm-hmm. Uh, which is great. So uh, I will get back involved with the Amiga in a, in a much bigger way than I have done to date. Oh, um, and uh, is there an Amiga emulator? Or oh, I guess you can run UAE on, on the Raspberry Pi? Well, I actually did a video. There's a new, um, I've got a YouTube channel that does a lot of Amiga stuff. I'll, I'll link you up. And there is actually a new cool. um, distribution that's just come out on the Raspberry Pi called, is it a- Amibian? Yeah. Amibian. Oh, yes, Amibian. That's yeah. right. I learned about it from listening to the podcast. Yeah, yes. that's so that's easy. Cool. It's like literally point and click install and, uh, and everything. And a build's going to be coming out for that soon that yeah. we'll be able to help you with. Yeah, so so. all pre-installed Excellent. and everything. You're talking to the right guys, Ben, if you want to get back into Groovy. the Amiga. <laughs> well, Excellent. It's been so interesting getting your stories and stuff. And, you know, I, I just want to say, I think anyone that read Amiga format back in its latter days will agree it was some of the best times um, in that magazine's history, I think, in terms of the quality of the articles. And, you know, like you said, it just felt like it was really the, the glue of the entire scene back then. So, you know, we just want to say th- well, thank, thank you, you for the great work you did on Amiga it, format back in the day. It was my uh, favourite mag, full stop, of all, all the magazines. You, you've still got most of them, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you still got loads. If you need any back <laughs> issues. <laughs> well, the funny thing is that uh, when we left Bath, I had pretty much every single back issue because Future was getting rid of them all. Uh, so I, I had them all, and I also had all the backup CDs from every issue from the very first one up to the very last one. I didn't know what to do with them, and there were a couple of Amiga guys that came round. They were kind of awestruck to be in Ben Voss' apartment, you yeah. know, to see his Amiga <laughs> and stuff like that. And uh, I said to them, look, there's this stuff. If you want it, you can have it. I'm not sure of the legality of me giving it to them, but it was going to go in the bin at Future, so they took it. So uh, you can put out a a call on the podcast or on the Facebook page or or whatever to see if those guys still exist. That'd be really interesting to see all that, wouldn't it? Who's got Ben's magazines? Yeah, no CDs. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. It's been lovely talking to you. Yeah, lovely talking to you guys as well. Thank you very much for having me.